0: This Guardian Family Podcast is sponsored by Jump, the savings fund for children. To find out more, visit
1: jumpsavings.com. Hi, this is Miranda Sawyer and welcome to the Family Podcast from The Guardian, the show that ventures into both the darkest and the daftest parts of family life. In this month's podcast, top tips for working mums about to go away on business. Ladies, is this the way you prepare your family for your absence?
0: You're probably riddled with guilt. Record yourself reading your child's favourite bedtime story. Your child will love turning the pages to your
2: voice while you're away.
1: Yeah, with you shouting, Go to sleep! In a motherly way. And this month's family playlist comes from producer and director Stephen Woolley, who'll be talking about how working class life isn't always doom and gloom.
3: I had some really great, strong women in my life my three aunts were fantastic my nan worked all of her life in a brewery and she could turn the air blue within a second she was the strongest person i ever met
1: we also have american playwright and author roger rosenblatt describing how he and his wife had to redefine their roles as grandparents to young children when their daughter died this is the family podcast from the guardian Joining me in the podcast studio this month are Karen Matterson, the co-founder of Women Like Us, a company which specialises in finding part-time work for women with children. Hello. Hi. And Jill Trinor, business reporter for The Guardian. Hiya. Hello. Welcome to our pod hub. It's lovely, <laughs> isn't
0: it? I'm used to doing the business podcasting here and there's far less laughter. Oh, really? Well, I'll be say. serious. Don't worry.
1: That <laughs> happens. That happens later. Okay, Karen, a very serious note. How does Women Like Us work?
2: Uh, women Like Us, we set up five years ago because we were working mums ourselves who couldn't find any senior flexible jobs that were advertised at all. But we knew they were out there, and so we um, worked with employers who had flexible part time jobs to offer and matched them with mums who we'd met at the school gates. And that grew from an idea of matching in a very local way to a business which has grown hugely with 20,000 women registered, 60 staff, and we've placed Um, women in roles with over a thousand
1: employers that's amazing and well I presume it's a full-time job for you now this part-time setting up
2: well actually I I think um, Emma and I set up we both had children and we're now four directors of the business and I think we decided we had to make it work for ourselves so I am still part-time
1: well done (laughs) just just In a recent interview with The Times, Harriet Harman said, just before handing over the reins to the new Labour Party leader, who is that now? To be a mother is to feel guilty. So was the productivity company AXA simply reflecting the way working mothers feel by publishing a set of tips for female employees in corporate healthcare schemes? I love these tips, by the way. I'm just going to really relish them. (laughs) These handy hints included Leave little love notes These are great for husbands and children Slip a little I love you or I miss you into a lunchbox or under the pillow It's always nice to hear And also Prepare meals in advance and freeze them Munching on mummy's meals will remind them of how much you love them Or, in my case, it will remind them of how much they dislike mummy's cooking but, but never mind Anyway, these tips caused a storm of protest and Axo has now apologised and withdrawn the document So we, it, it was all done with with the kind of greatest of intentions, wasn't it? But it backfired really badly. Why do you think it backfired so badly?
0: To me, it just shows that there's this idea that women are still responsible for all those things in the house, like cooking the dinner, and being the one that gives the love and loves the kids and makes sure they're in school in time. And, and the fact the is, and reading and the stories at bedtime. And I think that you know the reality is that. I, I, well i don 't know what the reality is in many households, but the fact is it just hammered home that idea that that is the woman 's work yeah, and in fact well in my household it 's not that it 's not my work, and i don 't know what it is in other people 's households, but to me, it just cements this idea that we use some kind of 1950 s perfection where there 's a woman at home with yeah. the dinner on the table, reading the stories at
1: night. And, and also, Karen, there's a, the, the, the problem is even if you did feel like that's what your role was, it's slightly patronising to be told that this is how you do it. If you, do, if you were the kind of kind of amazing mother who froze all the food before she left the house and, 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 and kind of left notes here, there and everywhere, would you really want somebody to tell you how to do it?
2: I mean, I think that's the point. I just find, I mean, I find it funny in the sense of its datedness, but fundamentally really patronising because... It just felt like another stick to beat us working mothers with. And I think, like Jill says, you do it in your own way and everybody's got their own family set up. And personally, yes, I make industrial quantities of spaghetti bolognese <laughs> because, okay. you know, that's what my kids eat every Monday, not because I'm on way on business. That's just what I do. But I don't need anyone else to tell me to do it. And I think that the kind of advice that's helpful for mums to give to each other was not on that piece of paper, but they're sort of things like, it's enough to progress things on your do- to-do list and it's fine not to get to the photo albums. <laughs> and, and, and those Does anyone of ever get to the photo I albums? I don't know anybody.
1: I never print my photos off these days.
2: I mean, I just think that um, we've all got fantasies about how things work in other people's houses and we're all making it work in our own houses and our own jobs in the way that we can. And I think that... That was just incredibly patronising.
0: Well, there's something ridiculous about the idea that women's worth is measured by whether or not you can get dinner on the table in the evening or whether or (laughs) not you can read a story to your child at night. I'm sorry, I find it totally and utterly infuriating. Imagine if you said to a man, actually, your worth is that you're always there at bedtime, you're always there to read the story at night, you're always there to make sure the tea's on the table, you're always there to make sure your kids are picked up from school. It's totally and utterly patronising.
1: It needs to end in the morning. did Did you speak to anyone from AXA about this? I did.
0: I did have a conversation with them, and they told me that... Uh, it 's part of a mail out that goes out for people who are members of a certain scheme that 's a kind of employee benefit scheme and what they tell me is that uh, it went out. Somebody obviously made a decision that it was fine for it to go out, and then they had one reader who rang in about yeah. it and that and were that instantly saying? well angry about it and then yeah. that instantly made them realize yeah. the, the error that they had yeah. made. And at that point, they knew they had to withdraw it.
1: But the, the, but it, then it kind of went on. It, it kind of but yeah, it became viral,
0: of course, because yeah. it ended up on the internet.
2: You know, I think that the examples that they put just made it so funny. Because mm. one of the suggestions to women was that while you're on business, you can use your cell phone to keep in touch with your children. <laughs> Thank goodness, <laughs> I never thought of that—that that I could actually ring home to see how everyone was. That was one of my favourites.
1: We're we're constantly told that working mothers feel guilty, that they feel guilty about being away from the from the kids or they feel guilty about not doing their 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 jobs properly would you agree with that because i have to say that quite often i don't feel guilty to be honest and maybe that's me but i don't i hope that my child is is happy if he is unhappy i feel terrible and i will do everything that i can to make him happy again but i don't feel guilty about having your job because otherwise he wouldn't eat and also i would be very unfulfilled so i have to say that some of this guilt stuff doesn't really ring true with me. Do you think it rings true with a lot of people? I mean, I think
2: a lot of people do. And I think that um, there, there's lots of stuff in the media that will help us to feel guilty in that way. But I think that we have to make peace with it in whichever choice we, we make in our lives. So for us, say, for example, setting up Women Like Us, that's because there didn't seem to be a third way of doing it. You can work full-time, you could not work, you can work part-time and use the skills and experience you've built up. But I think you have to make peace with the choice that you've made and also understand that that choice may change over time and your needs, the needs of your children and family may change and you may work in different ways throughout your life. Do you
1: find that there's guilt amongst women who work in the city or amongst your colleagues, jo you? Mainly anger,
0: I find. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, look, I do a straw poll of the people I speak to every day and, in fact, most of the people I speak to are men, frankly. But, you know, I think that most women feel... Uh, don't they frustrated that, you know, if they see men being promoted above them, they wonder if it's because they're a woman. I mean, I think guilt is a difficult word and it feels something hideously associated with the middle classes. If you're somebody who's trying to make ends meet and you're going out to work so you can... Make sure you can buy a loaf of bread next week. Then I'm sure a guilt doesn't come into
1: it. Yeah, you just you're just working yeah. and you can you're just on because with because it. Yeah, yeah. In the 1990s, I remember there was a Nicola Horlick, who was right at the top of her profession in the in the city, and she had at least four children. I think she had more, and she was presented as supermum. The idea that you could have you know, a really big family and and run an incredibly successful business. Do you think that we've kind of moved on from that idea or that, that that pressure isn't put on to people, that it doesn't really matter?
0: I think it matters all the time. And I think that those women in the city are still there. Mm-hmm. And the reality, you know, one of the reasons I think they can be supermums, it's a personal view, but is it, that they also are surrounded by people to do a lot of the things for them. So they've got plenty of childcare around. They've got very supportive uh, f- friends and family who can do these things for them, and, and on the whole, they're in very high-powered jobs where they're earning plenty of money, where they can throw money at the issue. Yeah, these it's people a certainly like them, the do. kind exist. of Madonna
1: syndrome, so you can have four kids or. or it's, not in, it's, it's
0: not in any way meant to be criticism in any way yeah. at all, but I think that you know that these p- people make decisions to have very large families, uh, but they also have the ability to
1: afford them. These days we hear a lot about grandparents taking a more hands-on role with their grandchildren acting as free childminders and babysitters. There are very few, however, who are forced to actually replace a mother as playwright and journalist Roger Rosenblatt and his wife Ginny did when their daughter Amy died aged 38, leaving behind a grief-stricken husband and three young children. Roger has written a book about this experience called Making Toast and is on the line from Long Island. Hello, Roger. Hello. So this is a very moving book. Um, One of the questions that it it made me ask myself right at the very beginning, and indeed at the end, is can anyone really fulfil the role of a lost mother?
4: No. Um, And certainly Ginny, my wife, um, I imagine comes as close as any grandmother might. But um, I suppose what what we're doing is sort of... um, jerry-rigging a family as well as we can, and uh, that is Harris, um, my son-in-law, my, uh, my daughter's husband, and uh, Ginny and I. And the three of us simulate um, as, well as, as well as we can um, the original and much better uh, situation of mother and father. We can um, uh, provide guidance and certainly protection and health but we can't provide what Amy, our daughter, provided, and no one could.
1: One of the things that kind of really struck me about the book was the point where you listed, for instance, what Ginny, your wife, does the, in the whole of the day until mm. the end of the day. And it's obviously, I mean, what she does is essentially the kind of mother's role, so she packs lunch boxes, she makes sure that people get to the right place at the right time. That's quite tough as you uh, get older. It's tough enough as a, as a mother, but it's quite hard as you get older. Did you not find it incredibly tiring?
4: Well, yes and no. Um, It's partly exhilarating because the children are so much fun. Um, But the only thing missing when you start parenting at our age is the reflexes. And so I I, I find myself um, lagging quite behind a running child who decides to uh, outstrip me as they can at every turn. And you're right to point to that passage about Ginny and what she does, which is in fact why I wrote it, because I wanted to give a sense of the, not just uh, the sequence of events, but the accretion of the events and how, how much a mother does. And yet we go back to your original question, with all that accumulated, she is still not their mother.
1: Yeah. You, you said also that you knew as soon as you heard about Amy's death, what you had to do. You and Ginny didn't even have to ask each other. You knew that what you would do is go and stay in the family house. Um, and when, uh, uh, when Jesse, one of the children, asked you how long you were going to stay and you said, forever. Was there um, never any hesitation about that? Because obviously they the children still had a, a full-time dad and indeed a nanny as well. And some grandparents may have found it, may have hesitated to make that jump.
4: I can't really explain it. Um, there was something in her eyes. Um, she's always, she Jesse always uh, was eager for us to stay uh, as long as we could. And we had, we were all close anyway before this happened, which helps... But there was no pre- premeditation on my part, no discussion with Ginny uh, beforehand. When I said forever, um, I didn't even look at Ginny. I knew that Ginny's answer was the same. And then when we asked Harris, of course, I, <laughs> I realized I was asking Harris after the fact. But um, he very much wanted this. So, uh, uh, so we just started along. It's, very, it's interesting that you can um, turn on a dime. That's an American expression. Pivot uh, very quickly. Um, when an emergency occurs and when people need you especially. The expression of need really uh, can uh, change a life at a moment and and willingly, eagerly.
1: Yeah. And how old, they were very young, the kids, weren't they, they when Amy mm. died? How old are they exactly?
4: James was only 14 months. He barely had language. Uh, Sammy was four, Jesse's six.
1: And how did they respond to losing their mother? There's a very uh, moving part when um, Sammy goes to school and he draws a picture.
4: His teacher asked the the children in the class to draw pictures of their families. So, uh, Sammy's included Amy lying dead because the two older children discovered her um, in the uh, in the area of uh, the basement where um, she had collapsed. And on the one hand, it breaks your heart and you, that that the child would draw his mother lying dead. On the other, And I conferred with the uh, psychotherapist whom the children see, and she said that boys particularly will just say something like that or express something that way, and then it's done with. And I have found this to be true with Sammy and increasingly with James, even though James, um, uh, as I say, uh, did not have any words or had very few words um, when Amy died. Um, with Jesse, on the other hand, with girls, girls keep it in, and they will choose, uh, they will husband their time, and they will choose the moments to express their grief, and therefore it's much, it's a much more subtle operation. They want to, uh, it is explained to me, that girls want to feel particularly safe in a situation before they uh, they express their emotions. And children are, were brokenhearted, remain brokenhearted. The three of us operate within a context of sorrow, but we operate nonetheless, and that's Um, We we try to garner as much uh, fun and pleasure um, and satisfaction of living as we can.
1: And could you just tell me, with uh, Making Toast, it's a lovely title, what do you mean to refer to by
4: that? (laughs) Well, I'm so inept in everything that I discovered that uh, the one thing that I could do, and now I've become quite expert in, should you desire a piece of toast, I'd be happy to send it to you. (laughs) I can make toast. I tell you that and is a
1: difficult. It's a difficult uh, talent that you know. You have to, to get it, it well, right. It's hard. It's,
4: I'm so glad you appreciate it. So many, <laughs> so many people look at it dismissively, but I, I see the art in it. So in the mornings, um, just it, it had you know it, it became a metaphor by accident. Uh, it was it was just something to do to give toast to the children because they wanted, particularly James. One of James's first words was toast, and uh, when I would take him from his father in the morning because I get up earlier than the rest of the family, he would open his arms to me and say, toast, and we would begin our day. And this is how the day is. Now it's two and a half years later, and we still do that. But then it grew um, in my mind to a metaphor of getting on with it. You just make toast in the morning, and you butter the toast, and you eat the toast, and then you go, then you get dressed, and then you go to school, or you go to work and put one foot in front of the other and see if you can survive. So Making Toast became um, a way of expressing the desire to live, I guess.
1: Thank you very much, Roger.
4: Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: So obviously, Roger's is a very particular, moving story of, of, uh, of difficulty. But generally, grandparents seem to be taking a lot more role in in, uh, in their grandchildren's lives, whether they want to or not, don't they, really? Um, my own, My own mother, when I had a child, <laughs> said to me, Darling i don't mind taking him if you want to go to Glastonbury, but I'm not going to come down and do Monday to Thursday because I think that so many of her of her contemporaries of her of her friends are taking up so much time looking after their kids.
2: yeah, I think it can be a huge pressure as well for grandparents I mean in my case, my mum was already was still working when I had my kids for the first ten years, and now she's stopped we've slipped into emergency situations, but nothing regular, and I think they wouldn't
1: really want it. Well, yeah, half the time, I mean, you do think they've retired. If they if they have retired, you yeah. know, shouldn't they be going on cruises or something or at least playing golf or something, whatever whatever people want to do when they retire rather than running around on rapidly stiffening legs after small children? It's just too much.
0: I don't know. I remember
1: when I grew up uh, in the
0: 70s like you um, mm-hmm. that, you know, we lived all in the same street. We ran in each other's, my nan's house, my aunt's house, my house. You know, we were all interchangeable. My mum wasn't there because she was working, but I'd go in my nan's. Well, I think now, I mean, my personal experience is that my parents and my husband's parents live a long way from where we live. Yeah, mine too. And the reality is that it's just not practical. And equally, you know, I think childcare becomes tougher. And I think selfishly as a parent, uh, you know, a grandparent doing it, it's much harder. You, you, you can't actually tell them what to do. Whereas at least if you're paying somebody, it's like, do you think you could definitely be on time? It's kind of slightly easier to say. I'm not saying my parents wouldn't be on time. But, you know, I'm just saying it, 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 it makes the relationship slightly easier.
1: Stephen Woolley is one of the UK's most successful film entrepreneurs, having produced movies such as Deep breath here. The Company of Wolves, Absolute Beginners, The Crying Game, The Butcher Boy Scandal, Michael Collins, Mona Lisa, The End of the Affair, and How to Lose Friends and Influence People. And that's not all of them. He's been a distributor as co-chairman of Palace Pictures, a cinema manager at the Scala, and even a director. For the last eight years, he and his wife, Elizabeth Carlson, have headed the production company Number 9 Films, which is about to bring out Made in Dagenham. Here's Stephen's family playlist.
3: Well, the first track that uh, means an awful lot to me, when I was a kid, I grew up with a dad um, who wasn't particularly into classical music. He had about 10 or 12 records, and they were all kind of like very popular. Um, they were obviously into the Beatles and the Stones and all the music that was flying around the 60s. My mum loved Bachelor Boy by Cliff Richard. That was an endlessly played in the house. But on a Sunday morning, my dad would sort of get the classical records out and play them at full volume. Given that we had, had a room that was the size of a of a small toilet, it, was, um, it, it, was, uh, it, it just stayed in. It was kind of imprinted in my brain, his favourite records, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture and Dvořák's New World Symphony, which later became... The Hovis ad, Alan Parker's first big claim to fame as a director, was the Hovis ads. Of course, when I saw the Hovis ads, I just had to think of my my dad lying in bed on a Sunday morning um, making us go and get the Sunday papers and and, uh, the chocolate biscuits. It was his one day off, and he he was a great one for lying in, something that um, I think modern families don't really get a chance to do. I love this piece of music and there's something elegiac and something very beautiful about it and something um, which was very close to my heart I think we did live in, in a Monty Python style manner. there were five of us sleeping in one room and we had the tiniest kitchen in the world and we ate all of, our, all of our meals on the floor which is probably why I became a great reader as a kid and why I got into films because I had to escape and this piece of music really is escape music it's the kind of music you listen to and you think about the fjords and you think about you know the the place that uh, Dvorak came from and it was such a different world from the world of Islington and the world of growing up and not too far from here just out the road and we're in King's Cross at the moment and I was brought up and just off the Caledonian Road so you know Dvorak was a way of moving out.
1: I like the idea it was just kept for Sundays as well like a kind of almost like religious idea.
3: It was my father was not religious at all in fact uh, my dad hated any kind of authority he would chase uh, he chased uh, Jehovah's witnesses up the street um and he didn't like doctors very much either or dentists or anybody with any kind of authority at all but he did um we did ask, so I suppose yes you're right it was it, it feels very religious when you listen to it
1: so how does that piece of music segue into your second piece of music which is here comes the sun
3: well actually i played i, I managed to to find um a place to bury my dad in uh, highgate cemetery and uh, conveniently right by Karl Marx's grave which is ironic because my dad was really a, a, a really was a a working-class Tory um so it was quite funny all these all these political prisoners and 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 philosophers are all buried right where my dad's buried um so that was he would have found that very funny and um and we played um, New World Symphony there um And we also played Here Comes the Sun because, again, as I said, the Beatles were were kind of number one on the list of songs that we heard during the week. And my daughter had just been born then, our daughter, I should say, Elizabeth and I's daughter, Florence. And uh, unlike my other two kids who had dark uh, brown hair and dark brown eyes, uh, Flo was born with this mass of of yellow hair and um, a throwback to Elizabeth's Scandinavian genes because her dad's from Sweden and we were so shocked that this little thing came out um, looking like the sun with all this glory in and so immediately it became her song whenever we heard it on the radio or we put it on in the car that was Flo's song, it was Here Comes the Sun Here comes the sun doo-doo. Here comes
0: the sun And I say it's all right
1: Your final piece of
3: music. Well, again, this is a strangely dates back to when I was a kid and, and this pile of rubbish old records that we had in the corner, and I would get them out when my parents were, weren't around and play play them. And um, there was one which was a movie themes, and I was very young. I didn't really see the movie theme thing. They had things like Limelight by Charlie Chaplin on it. Mainly all 50s movies. Um, well, they would 40s and 50s movies. And one of the themes was from The Third Man, the Harry Lyme theme. It's a great, great piece of music, and it's almost as if the film is designed around that piece of music. It's, it's such a, a fundamental part of the film, um, and it just is so beautiful when you see Orson Welles appear out of the shadows and, and you hear a couple of notes from the zither. <laughs> And I suppose, really, all of those films you see as a kid on TV inspire you. I mean, certainly The Third Man inspired me. David Lean's Great Expectations inspired me. All those movies that we used to watch on on uh, black and white television. And uh, interestingly, making now, Maiden Dagenham, it's a film that was also inspiring because of the people I knew at that time. I, I had some really great, strong women in my life my three aunts were fantastic and my nan my nan worked all of her life in a brewery and she could turn the air blue within a second she was the strongest person i ever met um but i had this great affinity with her because i would be dumped with my nan every night for a couple of hours while my mum was at work and we didn't really say very much but i loved her company she just gave me such a sense of of well-being and security, which I could never get from my mum, <laughs> because my mum was very young when she had me, and she was always doing things like leaving me. And when I was young, I was sort of on the outside buildings with with the uh, brake off the pram, so I'd be <laughs> hurtling down towards my desk, certain death under a bus, or leaving me on the counter. That was one of her favourite tricks. She would go into a shop and sort of put me on the counter, get a purse out, and then leave. I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> I mean, and so I'd just be left there on the counter, thinking she really doesn't want me. Um, so I kind of, my nan, on the other hand, was in her way, was so caring and, and, and loving in it, but in a very brusque North London, East London way. And um, she had so many kids by so many husbands and, and they all had different names. And, you know, they, they always talk about this world of being working class, of being boring and terrible. And I've never known people to have such a good time. They would laugh at anything all the time. They thought everything was funny. Somebody broke their leg. Oh, it's hilarious! The postman got bitten by a bit by a dog. Oh, that was so funny! It was just that everything was funny. And I listened to these women. I re, listening to this thing called Reunion on the radio, talking about the strike. They managed to change history. They were able, with Barbara Castle's help, to force through the Equal Pay Act. And it was something so extraordinary and something so incredible, and yet they did it with humour. And it's a very convoluted way of talking about the Harry Lyme theme. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the music I was listening to while those those fantastic people were, you know, helping me grow up. And so, you know, it actually means more than just Orson Welles and Graham Greene. It means my nan, you know, and my aunts and, and, and my crazy mum and...
1: And indeed Made in Dagenham.
3: Yeah, and that all was somewhere in Maiden Dagenham. I did get Sandy Shaw in the film, but I didn't get the Harry Lyne theme.
1: And Made in Dagenham is in cinemas now. Well, that's all we have time for in this month's podcast. My thanks to Karen Mattison, Jill Trinor, Roger Rosenblatt and Stephen Woolley. Don't forget to pick up Saturday's family section if you're after more tears, tantrums and truths about contemporary family life. From me, Miranda Sawyer, and my producer, Sarah Peters, goodbye.
0: In today's instalment of the Children's Guide to Bringing Up Parents, brought to you by JUMP, the Savings Fund for Children, we're looking at learning to plan for the future. What's this about, Alexander?
1: Well, Becky, on the whole, parents are rubbish at this. They just live in the present, failing to realise that if my sports kit isn't washed by Wednesday morning, it's bound to be a crisis. The same with my sparkly top on Saturday evenings. How do you help them develop their skills? Help them understand that planning ahead is in their interest too. Take JUMP, the savings fund for children. Put a little money into it regularly over the years and then, later on, when there are big bills to pay for first cars, first flats, going to uni... We'll still be able to cash in our savings and spend it all on clothes. You'll never sell it to them
0: like that, Bex.
3: Find out more about JUMP, the savings fund for children, at www.jumpsavings.com. As Jump is an equity investment in Witten Investment Trust PLC, please remember that past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of your shares and the income from them can rise and fall, so you may not get back the amount originally invested. Issued and approved by Whitton Investment Services Limited, registered in England number 5272533 of 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M 3AE. Witten Investment Services Limited provides investment products and services and is authorized and regulated by the Financial Services Authority. Calls may be recorded for our mutual protection and to improve customer service.